This is the fifth weekend that what are referred to in Paris as the Yellow Vests have come to demonstrate. And we see this activity, we see the confrontations, and people are starting to say, okay, what is this? I listened to an analysis of it, and one of the things that struck me was they said, because this movement is so diverse, so broad, so unorganized, and I think that's one of the things that drives the new people nutty, is because it's unorganized. News needs something to be organized to tell the story. And the point that the one, the analysis that I was reading said, the problem in trying to analyze this is that there is no what is called a meta-narrative. There is no big story. There is no story that links everything together. That's why it seems disorganized. That's why it's like, why are you doing this? Now, our sermon, our scripture pastor, is part of a meta-narrative, a big story. One of the things that... I will point out to you is that when you read Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, the last time God gave written revelation, here's how he closed it out. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So for this 400 years of silence, this 400 years that the meta-narrative, the great big story, the story that I call living in the midst of God's grand story, this section, this cycle is called the seed around the birth of Christ. That silence, waiting for the day of the Lord, And remember, Malachi reaches way back to Horeb. Remember, we had a sermon from from Deuteronomy 29 where you had Horeb and then you had Moab where God was renewing what they did in Horeb. Horeb, of course, was where the Ten Commandments, where God came and wrote on the stone himself. (coughs) So now in Luke we have what I call this first contact of the new age, the new chapter in the story. Now, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, was the third one written in about 62 AD. Mark was the first, then Matthew. Matthew is kind of an expansion of Mark. But Luke reorganizes it because he tells us at the beginning that he talked to eyewitnesses. And we think that Zechariah and Elizabeth had that time after our story, when, she, when Mary came when she was pregnant and Elizabeth was still in the latter part of her pregnancy, 
that they could have told him all these stories so that there is a lot of information in the beginning of Luke's gospel that we think Mary told Luke. But our passage, starting in verse 5, starts inside the temple. Now, one of the things you need to remember about the temple is this is a temple that was kind of cobbled together after they came back, you know, the Ezra and Nehemiah days. It was partially funded by a foreign king. This was a temple that was remodeled again, and then you had Herod spend a lot of money on his remodel. And what you have to realize is that the remodeling had to do with the courtyards, with the walls, this great show. Even though Herod spent a lot of money, what is referred to as the temple, the area where the Holy of Holies and the holy place where our story takes place, the altar of incense would have been there, and then the menorah that was brought in after they came back. It is in this place of prayer that the angel comes. You have this encounter between the angel and Zechariah surrounded by a multitude of people who are praying. This is their daily prayer service. So you have this this shift because we know that the Messiah, remember when we looked at Isaiah 53, is going to come and give himself and be the lamb that his blood was shed for our sins. But yet it is in a time of prayer. Because that is going to be one of the big shifts is because what happens at the altar of gold where the blood is sacrificed, the animals are sacrificed, when Christ dies on the cross, that will be done away with. And coming into the presence of God through prayer will become one of the most universal and powerful things Christians have. See, we are so used to this that when we think about this priest standing there, having been chosen by lots to go in and to put the incense and to burn the incense, to say the prayers, knowing that people are surrounding him with prayers that are going up to God. And I think it's important for us to understand that those people truly believed that if they were there together, they could pray and God would hear him. That God would hear their prayers. Now, this prayer meeting is the start of Christmas. Remember how I said in your crush scenes, your manger scenes, last week you should have Herod, then Pilate in the background. You see, what I would say is in your timeline, you have another scene over here 
before it, maybe up to a year, in the temple where God is sending that first angel, that first angel to communicate. Remember how we've seen how God has changed the way he communicates, whereas in, in Horab, he comes down with his, his self, and they hear his voice, and they see him, he writes on the tablet. And you get to Moab, and it's through his prophet that he is speaking. Angels are introduced. Interesting that the angel in Daniel is also called Gabriel. And you're going to see angels throughout the Christmas story come to individuals. Get to that next week. Come to the shepherds in public. So you have a group of angels coming to a group of the most marginalized people, the poorest people in their society. So that we create these scenes that we see on postcards and things that the shepherds come to worship. The shepherds come directly to the birthplace of Jesus to worship. And then later on we'll see with the rich wise men who have traveled from afar come to worship. And so in the beginning of our story about the announcement about John the Baptist, this one that is going to be so great and bring joy and gladness. As well as pain and suffering. He is one who has this great story arc people coming out to be baptized, people repenting of their sins, of people turning to God. And then what happens? Jesus shows up. Because remember what John's mission was. John's mission was not to be the hero, but to get us ready for Jesus. For the day of the Lord. Because he is a prophet. He is a man. He is born Zachariah and Elizabeth in their old age. Now, one of the things that you'll see in this story is flashbacks to different places of biblical history. Verse 12, Zachariah was troubled when he saw him, the angel. Fear fell upon him. How often do we see that in the Bible when God reveals himself, when God sends his messenger? People respond in fear because they realize that their world is about to change. The angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will call his name John. Where have we heard the story about two old people having a child and God says, and I'm going to name it so that you know it's my child. Go back to Abraham and Sarah. They thought they were too old. Sarah, laugh. I mean, me get pregnant? 
you know, early 90s. So he's got two issues here. He's got, is it from God and is it true? Look what he says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice in his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Imagine having God give you that story arc for a child. He is going to be great before the Lord. And you will have joy and gladness. Here is this older couple having this child come into their home, born of of this older woman, and they had prayed and prayed prayed. And here he is. Now he tells, the angel tells two unique things. He says, one, he must not drink wine or strong drink. Flashback, that's what Nazarenes made the offer. But more importantly, look what follows. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Can you imagine a parent, a Christian parent, hearing that about their child? You know, we have children, we pray for them, and, and you know, one of the stories I, I tell is I remember when I was about, forget when I was an actual teenager or just about a teenager, but my sister, who was seven at the time, so I would have been 14, okay, that, that helps with the math, she started praying in family devotions. Because my parents never, you know, you had to, obviously you had to be there, you had to listen to the Bible stories, you had to listen to everybody else pray. But when she prayed, her three brothers knew exactly what that meant. Knowing that the Holy Spirit can be in a child from birth. Now, when I think about my testimony about God working in my life, I do not have a memory of when I did not trust in Him. You know, I have very specific memories of like at the age of seven something happened that I realized that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and that if I would die, I would go to heaven because of Christ. Of course, Zechariah does what Abraham did. How can I know this? You have this dialogue. You have some of the best news that you're ever going to hear, but where? what happens? You doubt it. For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now remember, this is a couple that was described as being righteous. But notice 
Abraham is, I mean, Gabriel is very straightforward. Verse 19, he says, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That's my mission, to bring you good news. You know, sometimes that's one of the things that happens is that that God answers our prayer and we're not ready to have it be answered. We're so used to praying and praying for something that we're all of a sudden, when God answers it, it's like, can't be happening. We're not ready to have our normal routines and life disrupted by something that's going to change us and change our lives. You don't believe that God has spoken, you're not going to speak. I mean, isn't that kind of ironic humor or something that, that God, you know, the angel had said, okay, you don't believe that I'm from God, that I am speaking and giving you the good news? You're not going to speak until it is accomplished. I mean, you've got the best news ever. My wife's going to have a child. We're going to have a son we've been praying for. And God says he's going to be great and filled with the Holy Spirit, and I can't tell anybody. But he comes out, and, you know, we can imagine, you know, kind of like charades, you know, trying to say, you know, there was, you know, how do you, how do, you do an angel? How do you do a baby? But they realized something happened in there. And so he goes home. John is going to be a firstborn. He is named by God. Remember, naming is one of the things that adoptive parents do, that that they basically say, okay, here is your name. I mean, Elizabeth meant oath of God, and Zechariah meant remembered by God, and John is the Lord is gracious. This passage in Luke 1, beginning of verse 5, sounds like an Old Testament passage, doesn't it? In the days of Herod, king of Judea, gives you that historic link, wants you to know that this is real history, people. This happened in real time. See, that's one of the things that we need to get into our minds, and when we retell it, is that this really happened. This is not a myth. This is not a made-up story. Because so much has been added to it. See, I think one of the biggest parts of the Christmas story that our generation would have accepting would be that God can communicate to his creature. That there is a God who is there who can communicate who can tell a story, who can tell what's going to happen, who can name a child. Do you understand how hard that would be for so many of our neighbors? 
to believe that there is a God who is there, who speaks, and we can understand, and it can be written down so that we know what the word of God is. Tells us about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. When you read the Gospels, I challenge you to find any other priest in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that is described that way. Do you realize what this story is showing us? That out of all the corruption, there were still those believers. A husband and a wife. The only time you had famous husband and wife stories in those days was when you talked about the Greek or the the Roman gods and their wives and their shenanigans. But here are a husband and a wife who are said to be old, but yet, what does the Bible describe them as? They were both righteous before God. How do you become righteous before God? We flash back to Genesis 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We know that from the story of the covenant. The only way we become righteous is because God transfers his righteousness to us and our sins to him. And that is going to be explained more and more throughout the rest of the New Testament revelation. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. God is going to use a prophet, a preacher. Some people probably thought he was a wild man because of the way he dressed. Celeste joked to me, he says, you're not going to dress up like Elijah? I mean, like like, um, uh, John the Baptist? And I said, it's too cold. Because one year, when I was in my first church in Virginia, you know, that was back in the three-piece suit days, I showed up, open-toed sandals, leather sandals, blue jeans, and in those days, a turtleneck. Well, I got a turtleneck now, but, you know, the big, puffy turtlenecks. Just to have the contrast. See, part of his contrast was he pulled people away from the urban centers out to rural areas to preach. You know what I thought of when I thought about that? Do you know who used to disrupt Scottish Highland churches? These preachers that would come and put up tents and people would show up who wouldn't show up to church. They would show up to hear somebody speak. And God would use that disruption to change the churches in in the Highlands. John the Baptist, just by the way he looked, even though he, I mean, think about the pedigree this guy's got. Pure father, Levite. His 
mother is known as a daughter of Aaron. That is a very, very special class of woman, womanhood, being a woman in that time. So he is what in Harry Potter they would call a pure blood. But he's never at the temple. He's out in the woods. He's preaching. He's using words. And he will go before him, in other words, before the one who is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient, to wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Okay, he throws Elijah at us. See, this is one of those things that when you read the New Testament, you go, wow, he's bouncing around. He's at Horeb, and now we've moved forward to Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet who spoke with great power. He was not a kinder, kinder, gentler prophet. He was a in-your-face kind of guy. Standing up to the king. What happened to John the Baptist? He stood up to, to Herod. He lost his head. But isn't it interesting that in both the Malachi passage and in this passage... It talks about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. And see, as a father, what I'm I'm hearing there is how important it is for fathers to make sure their children know that they love them and to know what is true. And that sometimes it takes God's Ministry and Holy Spirit and the Word of God to turn a father's heart to his children because he is so self-centered, he is so selfish, he is so individualistic that he thinks only about himself and he doesn't think about his children. He's getting the people ready. Remember how Sarah was recognized by Moses in Genesis. Luke writes about Elizabeth. She keeps herself hidden. I mean, she probably, you know, we're not told how old she was, but she is well in advance of having children, evidently. All of a sudden, she's pregnant in all the normal ways, and she's probably just perplexed. Now, the other thing could be, maybe at that age she had a lot of morning sickness. I don't know, but she hid herself before she went out to let everybody know God is at work. God is at work through a woman. Thus the Lord, it says in verse 25, is done for me in these days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You see, there's this gigantic ministry, but yet the ministry of John by being born of his mother and the affirmation to her 
that God really did look on her that she was not left out. Remember what the angel said? The prayers of you and your wife are answered. Not just your prayers, but you and your wife. So what starts out small, seemingly in this conversation and revelation in this temple room with incense going, people outside praying, that the silence of 400 years has been broken. Now, in other times, other years, we'll look at John the Baptist and we'll see how that silence was broken in that ministry. But when we think about Christmas, oftentimes we do think about families. One of the very special, shouldn't say, sometimes I say things before I, my mind catches up. Do you pray that the Holy Spirit will be in your child from the moment of birth? The Holy Spirit, no matter what age that child is today, you pray that God will put the Holy Spirit in that child. And then to those who are fathers, and I would say mothers as well, that the Holy Spirit, the ministry of God through his church, through his word, through his spirit, would turn parents towards their children. would take away the toxic things that can be passed on. One of the most toxic things people pass on to their children is anger. Because I've been disappointed, I'm going to pass that on to you. Rather than, where were we in Genesis 12? What is one of the purposes of families? Is to pass a blessing from one generation to the next generation. And that's why... People like John the Baptist and the Word of God brings and turns parents' hearts to their children. After anger, I would say, oftentimes children don't trust their parents because they feel they have been lied to too much. And one of the things we know is that parents sometimes really need to confess their sins to their children and ask their forgiveness. All of this having our hearts turned towards our children. Christmas gives us that opportunity because it gives us the example of what John the Baptist was sent to do. Malachi said he was going to do it. The angel said he's going to do it. So we need to pray in this day and age that indeed the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel, the message of forgiveness and healing would come to parents to turn their hearts on their children and turn them away from selfishness and anger and and falsehoods. See, in, in those days, children... didn't get attached to their children. Parents did not get attached to their children because a very high percentage of them died before they became five. How do you love something you're going to lose? How are you willing to love and 
worry about losing that, loving something that's it's not going to last. And so what happens to that five-year-old who turns six, who's been ignored for the first five years because the parents were afraid to love because they're afraid the child was going to die? How do you repair that? We know it's possible through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit. And so one of my prayers during Christmas time is that families and to me it's humorous. What is one of the biggest Hallmark Christian movie themes? It's getting families back together. It's getting parents and children back together. It's it's almost as if they didn't know this, but they they read what John the Baptist was going to be doing, and Hallmark is giving us these sappy, soapy (coughs) stories. Because, see, you always know at the end they're going to get together, right? That's why you hang on to all the little torpy stuff. People keep coming to that because they know that's what they need. They need their families to be healed. And that's what John the Baptist was all about before Christ came. I don't know all of your family stories. That was one of the things when you're growing up and you keep hearing stories about your family. Stories that seem old, but you can see how they affected you. One of the stories in my family is that, pay attention, my grandfather's grandfather, got that? How far back we're talking? We're talking 1800s, middle 1800s was what they politely referred to in New York society as a closet alcoholic. When I learned that story, I said, that's why we act the way we do. We have been dry drunks for over 100 years. (laughs) That has passed down. All the stories my grandmother used to tell me about her mother-in-law, not a good relationship. But she was the most favorite one because her oldest son, her wife, had this dinner party. And, and, you know, that part of my family was upscale, Brooklyn, upstairs, downstairs servants. So they're having this dinner party with this very special china. And all of a sudden, her mother-in-law walks in, and the next day, all that china, because she did not ask permission, all that china was boxed up and sent to my grandmother. She got it out of a spit of anger. Now, that china, you know where it is now? It was given through my mother to my sister who is a Wycliffe missionary to China and has no idea what to do with a set of China that the Tsar of Russia 
would have built because that's where it came from. All because the family got angry. See, sometimes the message of Christmas, the message of Christ, the message of forgiveness starts in some of the hardest places in our lives, in our families. I think one of the things here is he brings joy and gladness. Is that something that describes your family, your relationships? Joy and gladness. I hope it does. I hope the Spirit of God will work in you. 